the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 12 through 24, the parable of the great banquet. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, sister. <clears throat> um, all the good stuff and beautiful stuff has already happened. So, um, but I do think God has a word uh, for us this morning from this text. And so I'm going to turn there as well and talk about it. I don't have three points. Um, this is a one, point, one pointer. If you're used to sermons with multiple points, this is not one of those. Um, so, the point that I want um, us to walk away with this morning and the thing that I, I hope that Jesus will impress, not just as an idea for us to wrestle with, but as um, a call to transformation and new life is this, is that the kingdom of God is only for people who have nothing better to do. Um, <clears throat> if you're here this morning and, and all this stuff is kind of new to you, the Bible, people getting baptized, stuff like that. Really grateful that you're here. And uh, if you're here and this is all super normal to you, you're really grateful that you're here too. But I want to remind us of some things that Christians believe about God. Um, <clears throat> Christians believe that God is beautiful and glorious, that he created everything, that everything exists as a result of God's creative power. And <clears throat> he is everywhere. And he's all-powerful. He can do anything that he wants. And he knows everything. That he is love. And he's also just. And it sounds pretty good so far. I think if we were kind of like assembling a deity, that would sound pretty, pretty strong so far. It, it meets what, we're, what we would be imagining. But this God also chose from eternity to enter the world that he had made and to actually become a human being. 
And the human being that he became as he took on a human body and a human soul, the, the human that he became was a basically anonymous man born in Roman-occupied Israel in ancient times before they had cameras or anything like that. And he didn't like just beam down from heaven, you know, like in a shower of light and then appear majestically. But he took the scenic path that all humans take into the world, at least so far, um, which is that he, he was, uh, he was uh, in a, the womb of a young woman. He was a zygote. You know, he was microscopic at some point, and he grew, and the, 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 the belly that he grew in belonged to a young, unwed teenage mother. And when, he, his, when the time for his glorious arrival came, he gloriously arrived into a place where livestock was fed. And as a kid, he would be raised, this was his choice, he, was, he chose to be raised by a stepfather surrounded by step-siblings who could never possibly understand him. And when he became an adult, he chose to be homeless and to reject all opportunities for success. Even though he was known as a very gifted person and a very smart person, he at every turn rejected opportunities to succeed in life and seemed like wasted potential. And uh, he was consistently rejected and misunderstood by anyone that mattered, and he actually chose a career as a traveling teacher, as a rabbi. But he made it so intentionally difficult for people to understand what he was teaching that, he, uh, that people became so confused and offended by him that they tried him on unjust charges and tortured him uh, physically and emotionally. And they murdered him on a trash heap outside Jerusalem. That's our God. That's the story that he chose. Now, you may be familiar with all those details, and maybe you kind of zoned out at some point in my talking about that, because you already know this story. But this is certainly not the kind of God story that we would likely conceive of on our own. If we were writing a story for God, it probably would look very different. Because if God is supposed to be the most ideal being... Why does he seem bent on doing things that are so unideal all the time and seem to work against his purposes? But this is the God that we get in the scripture. And Jesus actually tells us that this word is all about him. And to actually come to this word is to have an encounter with him. Now, we can choose to reject that, en that encounter or to sort of sidestep it or to put on a lot of religious shows so that we never encounter Jesus. But if we do want to encounter him, if we want to know him, then we have to be careful um, not to assume that we will understand naturally what he is like or that we will intuit what life in his kingdom would be like because it will probably be very different from what we would put together. And so as I said, this parable, I feel like most of this parable is still in the level of me not understanding what's going on. Um, but I do think that what Jesus has for us this morning from this parable, again, is that the kingdom of God is only for people with nothing better to do. And what I want to do is just quickly walk through that and to see what that means for you and for me. 
Jesus is at a dinner party held by a religious leader. It would be like if the pastor of the church or the priest or something like that, someone that was respected, invited him over for dinner. And uh, he's sitting at a table. And the way that parties worked was that someone invited you to their house. And then there was an expectation that you would then invite them to your house for dinner later. That was how networking got done. There was no like LinkedIn or like business conferences, you know. So the way that you got to know people and the way that you made connections was through dinner parties. And uh, Jesus knows this and he makes the entire evening super uncomfortable and awkward by saying to the, the host in front of everybody, you know, the next time you have a party, you should invite the poor and people who are disabled people that nobody wants anything to do with, because then they wouldn't be able to pay you back for your generosity. That's a very uncomfortable moment um, as everyone is suddenly exposed for how self-serving their dinner is. You know, they're like kind of scraping the unleavened bread, you know, around the plate, like looking awkwardly down. And then, of course, there's always the one person that can't stand an awkward pause. I'm usually that person. And uh, so he's like, oh, you said that they'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Man, isn't it going to be great when we all go to heaven and there's this banquet? Oh, it's going to be wonderful. He's like trying to just sort of change the subject and say something. And so Jesus, in his, you know, power and love and just the way that he showed up to things, says like, oh, heaven. Yeah, I like heaven too. Let me tell you a story about, <laughs> about heaven. And this, this is the parable that he tells. It's about this banquet in God's kingdom. And basically what happened was, you've ever gotten, have you ever gotten a save the date for, for a wedding, right? And uh, then you get a wedding invitation. So you put the, the marker on your fridge, you remember the date, then you get the invitation, you say, yes, I'm going to be there. It worked pretty similarly then, back in the day. You would be invited to a party, you would say, yes, I'm coming, I've RSVP'd, I put in the comments, so excited, party of two coming to your party, but you couldn't just say it would be Friday at five because it would take a long time to, you know, gather up all the animals and slaughter them and prepare them and get the wine. So what would happen is that the master would get the party together and then when everything was ready, the servants would go out to the people who had said yes and say, hey, it's time, come on over, come wash up and come to the party. And now that the servant has gone out and everything is prepared, um, these people are saying, I can't make it. Um, that there are things coming up, that have come up in my life that make it so that I can't come to the party. And they see these as excused absences. I got so much going on at work right now. I got these opportunities. You know, I got these five yoke of oxen. And I got you know, and I got to check them out. Because um, you never know. People be sl- trying to slide a bad oxen in with your five yoke, you know, and you got to make sure that they're good. One guy says that he has just gotten married. And so he can't come. He's still getting settled in. You know, I need to focus on my life at home. Basically, they all have things that are more important than showing up to this banquet that they had RSVP'd for. Now, I don't know how you would feel if this was your party and you had gone through all this work and then the people didn't show up. Uh, You'd probably be hurt, you know, a little offended. The, 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 The host is understandably ticked off because no matter how legitimate their excuses were, he can't just like pack the whole thing up and like take it back to Costco and get a refund, you know? Like he's already spent things, money that he can't get back. 
And it's kind of like, can't you just go like check out your oxen tomorrow? Like they're probably going to be fine. Or bring your wife to the party. It's great. There's plenty of room. And so he sends his servant out. And his servant goes out to the city to get people who are disabled and poor. And they could not have said yes to coming to this party because they couldn't have invited this host back to a party at their house. So they have to be told to come because they couldn't pay him back. And then when the house isn't full, this host says this party has to be full. I don't care who, what it takes. Go out into the country and find people in the country that are just standing around and tell them they have to come. He says, compel them. Don't ask. Tell them that they have to come. And all of these people come to the party, people that could never possibly pay the host back, they can't play the game, they all come for one simple reason, which is that they had nowhere else to be. They had no other engagements, no other parties, no other business interests. They were available. And so they came to the party. This banquet is only for people who have nothing better to do. And Jesus is showing us that the kingdom is only for people that have nothing better to do, that don't have any better options. There is a, um, a, a Mormon painter named Ben McPherson. Again, he doesn't paint Mormons. He is Mormon, and he's a painter. And I heard a story about him on This American Life, and he paints these huge realistic paintings of scenes from the Bible. And, uh, you know, of like, Jesus feeding the 5,000, or the crucifixion, and he needs models to pose for his paintings, um, but in order to be historically accurate, we know everybody back in the day had a beard, you know, but the thing is, people in Utah don't have facial hair, generally. Um, it's not, I, my understanding is it's not technically a rule, which is funny, because there was a guy from Utah here two weeks ago, and he had a really big beard, um, but he's not Mormon. And uh, so my understanding is it's not like a hard and fast rule within the, the Latter-day Saints church, um, but if you're going to serve in the temple, our understanding, if, if you're going to get a BYU, you can't have a beard. And so practically nobody has facial hair. It's just kind of a no-no within the Mormon church in Utah. So in order to get people to pose as models for these paintings, to stand in for Jesus and for Thomas and for Matthew and for John, he has to get people that are outside the church world to come and to pose. So he, would go, he goes and he finds homeless men who are on the street. They have no ability to shave. And he brings them and they, and they will pose. And he goes into anarchist cafes to find people that will come and pose. They, uh, they, there's one guy um, that's like this super metalhead guy with like awesome long hair and covered with tattoos. And he's in the painting and the guy that's, that is the model for Jesus is a Marxist economics grad student in Salt Lake City um, who has little to no interest in being Mormon. And the point is that these men made it into these holy paintings simply because they were available and they hadn't shaved. That was what qualified them to stand in for Jesus and Thomas and John and everyone else. They were outsiders who were available, and they just hadn't shaved. Now, you've probably heard, even if you don't know much about Jesus at all, you've probably heard one of his famous lines. It's like a t-shirt, but we don't put it on a t-shirt because it would make us feel uncomfortable. 
is it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's one of Jesus' famous lines. And the thing about the poor is that the poor lack options, you know. Um, you know, there's a song that says, no one wants to sleep out in the gutter. Sometimes it's just the most comfortable place, you know. If you're poor, you can't choose where to live. You can't choose what to eat. You can't choose what to do with your day off. You can't choose between multiple jobs or multiple social engagements. Having money buys you options. And when you're poor, you don't have options. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning blessed are those spiritually who don't have options and are simply dependent. And uh, there's a pastor named Tim Keller who's a pastor and a writer in New York City, and um, he says that there are basically two kinds of people. There's the poor in spirit, and there's the middle class in spirit. Everyone in America wants to be middle class, right? Like, it's like if you have money, you're like, I'm upper middle class, and if you don't have money, you're like, I'm lower middle class. Um, there's something noble to us about being middle class in America, but he says this about the middle class in spirit. You believe that God owes you some things. He ought to answer your prayers and to bless you for the many good things you've done. You feel that you've earned a certain standing with God through your hard work. You also may believe that the success and the resources you have are primarily due to your own industry and energy. For the poor, life with God is a gift. To the middle class, life with God is something that he kind of owes you. And if you're middle class in spirit, um, the danger with Jesus, and I think the danger that he wants us to see because he loves us, the danger is that you might be too preoccupied with life to come into the banquet. You might have somewhere else to be or something better to do. Or once you take a look inside and see who's there, you think this party isn't for me. Uh, maybe the most central reality to the Christian faith is grace. Um, very often talked about from people like me in front of people like you. Uh, very rarely acted upon by people like me, at least. I don't know about you. But grace is simply receiving something you didn't and couldn't earn. That you couldn't earn it, you didn't earn it, but you were given it anyway as a gift. Mark Twain, who I don't think ever made a profession of faith or called himself a Christian. Um, he's a fiction writer, Steve. Just yeah, um, He's good, though. Um, Mark Twain uh, once said that heaven goes by favor. That's another way of saying grace. Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Yeah. If heaven, if the kingdom of God worked by you uh, earning something, you would stay out and your dog would go in because your dog is just simply more loving and kind and consistent than you are. Um, Jesus operates by grace. It's one of those things that he does that we wouldn't do, that we wouldn't conceive of for him. He doesn't do things to get paid back. He doesn't want to be paid back. Um, we one time had a friend who was really sick for a long time, and we brought this friend all this medicine, we brought them food, all this stuff, and she was really uncomfortable by how much we had, we had been trying to show up for her. She was new in town, we brought all this stuff, and at the end she gave us a card saying thank you, and in the card was a $20 bill. 
And I was like, oh, honey, we spent way more than $20, you know? Um, but it was so uncomfortable for her to not pay us back. God doesn't want to get paid back. What he wants is for you to enjoy his feast. He wants you to be there with him and to not worry about any of the expense. He wants his house full and he wants to pay for it because he wants you to enjoy his freedom. So that for eternity, the scripture says, if you have, have you ever wondered like why Jesus did all this? He went to the trash heap, he died. What was the reason? Like why is he giving you something for free? It's so that for eternity, he might show to you the riches of his grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. He wants to spend eternity enjoying you and you enjoying him. So what do you do, and we'll end here, told you it was only one point, but it was, only, it was a third the length, sorry. What do you do if you're here and you're middle class in spirit? Um, who is going to teach you how to be poor? You know, if you want to learn piano, you find someone that already knows how to play the piano, and then you pay them to spend time with you so that they'll show you what they already know. Where can you find people who know how to live without options? Where can you find people who don't think that someone owes them something because of their hard work? Where do you find people who know how to be dependent, how to accept a gift? You know, we tend to think that befriending and serving the poor is something that we do for the good of another. But what if befriending and serving the poor is actually rehab for your own soul so that you won't miss the invitation to the banquet. The kingdom of God is only for those with nothing better to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. That you anoint our head with oil. And Father, thank you that you want your banquet to be full. And Lord, um, we don't want to miss it. But Lord, if we're honest, we probably would miss it if we weren't sitting, waiting for you to call us in. And so Lord, I simply pray that for my sisters and brothers and for myself, that you would teach us how to sit and wait for you to call us. And Lord, that you would show us, give us courage to move toward those who can teach us how to be poor that we might be blessed. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name.